Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. And uh, before we continue on in our Natural Faith series today, I first want to give you a quick bibliography of what I studied in preparation for today's message. First is the Bible. Always a good place to start, especially for a Sunday morning message at a church. Um, Number two, uh, Ross and uh, the rest of the pastoral staff, Ross, off off of uh, his messages and research uh, beginning this series and also just the rest of the pastoral team as we go through and plan these uh, out. And lastly, I studied a combo of messages, interviews, and quotes from the following pastors and authors. They are Andy Stanley, Greg Boyd, Bruxy Cavey, and Perry Noble. And also before we dive in, I want to take a second to pray. This message can be challenging. Um, it could be a little uncomfortable at points. Hopefully it's like a massage that hurts for a second and then you feel better by the end. At least that's what I'm shooting for. And uh, so let's hope for that. Let's pray for that, for an openness of heart and freedom for the Spirit to move here today. Dear Lord, I thank you for the time and opportunity you've given us, for the promise that you've given to us that if we gather in your name that you are here. And Lord, if there's anything that would be distracting us from your presence today for the leanings that you're putting on our hearts, we ask that uh, you just drop those from us. You drop those distractions. You allow us to focus in on you here and now. It's in your name we pray and continue. Amen. We're going to be looking at several passages today as this is quite a hefty topic. Um, It could really be a series in and of itself, but most of these passages are going to be Jesus tackling some Q&A And this one here is primary. Matthew 22, 36 through 40, it reads, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So let's keep this tucked in our hearts and our minds as we carry on today. And the remainder of our time here is going to be brought under three themes. They're highlighted. You should have received a bigger piece of paper on your way in with some notes on it and some fill-in-the-blanks on the back to help guide us through the topic. But the themes are, number one, the trouble with Christians, two, loophole syndrome, and number three, my personal favorite, what's love got to do, got to do with it, parentheses, baby. Um, and I did not steal these categories from Celebrity Jeopardy. I promise that. But let's move on today using those as our tent posts. So number one, the problem with Christians. Notice the quotations. This point is going to get up, uh, be brought up and has been brought up a lot in this series. But I think it's an important one to review. There is a problem with the word Christian And thus, there is a problem with the title of Christian. So this leads us to our first fill in the blank. The word Christian lacks meaning. Let me explain this in two examples. ABC did a poll a while back that showed 83% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. Furthermore, a third of those folks identified themselves as non-mainline denomination Protestants. In other words, a third of the Christian population or just about a quarter of the entire U.S. population could technically be a member of Quest just going off the findings of this poll. Now, I'm going to go ahead and guess that you probably don't feel that type of unity amongst the general populace. Um, A quarter of the entire nation sharing the same values and beliefs and how we do church. It, It just doesn't seem like it could be real. 
So can you see why people who don't believe in Jesus could get confused with this term of Christian? Can you see why other Christians may be confused as well? A great many folks who aren't Christians say they aren't because Christians are deemed as homophobic, disputatious, which is a new word I'm adding to my vernacular. That's a great word. Uh, you're, ready, you're ready to uh, dispute at any time. Quarrelsome, moralistic. Stanley's research also finds that people see Christians as those who tell people they're going to hell while secretly relishing the fact that they're the only ones that get to go to heaven. And then we have my favorite, the catch-all. Christians are deemed as hypocrites. And honestly, overall, I'd have to agree. We'll get more into Jesus' thoughts on that in a few minutes. But for now, let's get into our second example. Christian is our Yankee Doodle dandy. That's a weird sentence, both to say and to read. Um, But you all know the story, right? Yankee Doodle has become this patriotic mainstay in the States and even the state song of Connecticut. But it was originally written by the British Army, something like a 16th century poetry slam of the colonial army. Long story short, the whole title and lyrics describes them in 16th century slang as effeminate, disheveled simpletons. Like Ross mentioned in week one, Christian was a made-up derogatory term, much like Yankee Doodle Dandy. People on the outside of the early church didn't know what to call these people, and in some cases, in a mean way, decided to call them Christians, little Jesuses, using Christ as a last name rather than a title. It is also important to note that Christian is only used three times in the Bible. And just like Jesus and the New Testament writers made known, we were called to be disciples, not mere Christians. And hopefully this series, today's message included, will give us more of an idea of what that looks like. So the last fill in the blank before our next theme is, Jesus has called us to be disciples. Remember that as we move on to our second theme, which is number two, loophole syndrome. Finding loopholes in rules, commands, laws, traditions comes about as naturally to every human being as crying does to an infant. That is almost second nature. And at times I would argue that it is our nature. Let me give you an example. I was a hard child to punish when I was younger. And it wasn't because I was cute and had really great puppy dog eyes or anything like that. It was just because the the command, go to your room, really didn't faze me much. See, I learned something from my older brothers when I was young on Christmas Eve that said, um, the sooner you go to sleep, the sooner Santa Claus will come with presents. The sooner morning will be there, you'll open your presents. I took that same rule and applied it to punishment. So they'd say, go to your room, and I would just go take a nap. And before you knew it, the punishment was over. It was the first loophole that I ever remember figuring out on my own. I also vaguely remember uh, arguing over my uh, older brother Kevin's toys, and he he would say, that's not yours. And I'd say, yeah, it is. And he goes, no, it's mine. Is your name on it? And I would then write my name on all my toys and a good portion of his as well. So loopholes... We're we're always in them. We've all been there, and not just as kids either. How many of you have tried to loophole your way out of a speeding ticket or jury duty or an office meeting? Finding loopholes comes so naturally, and this dovetails right into our next fill-in-the-blank. Looking for loopholes allows us to serve the letter of the command while avoiding the intent of the commander. My parents said, go to your room. I went all right. I also went right to sleep. 
which was hardly their intent. And they picked up on this, by the way, but that's, that's totally another story for another time. Laws against drunk driving, for example, are meant to keep people safe. And you could still be unfit to drive if your blood alcohol level is below the legal limit. The same issue is true with Christianity. We tend to get so tied up in what the Bible says and what Jesus said, and I can feel the imaginary red flags popping up, but stay with me. If we focused on living like Jesus lived, rather than arguing over what Jesus said, the entire world would be different. There would be change. There would be revolution. Because you can manipulate and bend and distort words all day long. And you could do so with poor intentions or you could do so with the best of intentions and still wind up missing the point. Divisions over worse sins have saturated the church for years. We find a whole bunch of sins that we don't struggle with and we hold them up as more bad than others. And one church may bash the sexually immoral but speak nothing to correct the greedy. One church may rally against divorce but say nothing to those trapped in addiction. These are loopholes. They are loopholes because all sin is equally offensive to God, from sexual immorality to gluttony to greed. And if we think otherwise, and if we raise up churches that rally against some of these sins but not others, we're fooling ourselves. And we're confusing those that we're trying to reach about who we really are. If all someone has ever experienced, if all one person has ever experienced church always talking about money and always talking about money and giving more money and having this about money or always talked about sex in this way or marriage in this way or relationships in this way, we start to get a fragmented view overall as to what the church is supposed to look like. And again, can we blame them for not wanting to be a part of it? And this isn't just an issue in today's culture. Jesus was dealing with it in his time on earth. Check out Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God... They are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. There are essentially three laws being referred to here. One of which was an actual law of God. It made the famous list of ten. Uh, Honor your father and mother. And furthermore, as Jesus points out, anyone who curses their father or mother shall be put to death. Anybody else happy that uh, little uh, little line there got left in the Old Testament for the most part? Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't be here. None of us would be here. Okay. Then there are two that were added later by religious leaders following Moses. The first that is brought up is about washing your hands before you eat. And this has nothing to do with personal hygiene. So if you are teaching a small child right now to wash their hands before dinner, uh, please do not quote this to them. It has nothing to do with that. Um, Germ theory wasn't even around for a few more centuries. But this hand-washing law was originally a ceremonial washing to be done by religious leaders as a symbol of purity. And somewhere along the way, it was added in on top of the law that God gave to Moses. And then it was stretched out to everyone else, even beyond those religious leaders. 
In other words, it was one of the many extra laws that was created to keep people from breaking the original laws and thus came to outweigh the original law in the hearts and the minds of many. Let me explain it like this. In most schools, you can't chew gum, right? The rule is you can't chew gum. But a lot of schools adopt a policy that you can't even have gum on the campus, so in your book bag, in your pocket, or whatever. And even though sticks of gum don't magically fly around and float into your mouth, the second law is to keep the first law from even being an issue. And that was essentially what was going on here. There's nothing inherently evil about chewing gum and nothing inherently evil about washing your hands. But if those rules start to outweigh the original intent of the commander, we could have a problem. But Jesus responded to them by using another law that they had cooked up. In brief, the religious leaders of the day had figured out this loophole around supporting their aging parents. The law was to honor your father and mother, And this is an ongoing, indefinite command. And we all know either first or second hand that taking care of our aging parents can get expensive. So they figured out this little loophole that if they dedicated their money and everything they owned to God, they could get out of supporting their aging parents. So it goes something like this. Sorry, mom and dad. I know you're tight on money. And I'd love to pay your rent this month, but I've dedicated my money to God. So if I give it to you, it'd be like I was stealing from God. This was a bad, bad move. They teed this one up quite nicely for Jesus. And he calls out this law in verses 5 and 6. And then for the ultimate mouth closer at the end of verse 6 and into 7, he says, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And here's the big one, you hypocrites. If there was ever a time for Jesus to do the dramatic rap battle microphone drop and walk off stage, it would be right then. It would totally be right then. And please let it be known that Jesus has been calling out religious hypocrisy since before it was cool. All right? So hipster Jesus, whatever you want to call it, he's been doing it for a while. But this leads us to our next fill in the blank. Searching for loopholes shows the heart's intent. Much like those Pharisees were more interested in penny-pinching than serving their parents, we could find our heart's intent and sometimes even the intent of others by the loopholes that we or they are trying to exploit. Here's an example of why the heart's intent is so important to this greatest commandment of love that we've been called to. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17, yet another time of Jesus blowing the minds of religious folks. And 13, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, buttering them up a little bit, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. How many of you have heard this story before? Even mental raising of hands is okay. How many of you think of the musical Godspell when you hear this story? Okay, it's a pretty popular passage used in a lot of ways. And typically, verse 17 is the big thrust point in those teachings. However, what gets me most jazzed and what I think needs to be highlighted today is in the middle two sentences of verse 15. First it says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. 
So look back to 13. We were told they were sent to catch Jesus in his words, a.k.a. they wanted to stump him. They wanted to get his foot in his mouth, ruin his credibility. Then look at the next sentence in verse 15. Jesus says, why are you trying to trap me? Jesus knew full well that those guys weren't coming to seek knowledge. They cared very little about his views on taxes. They wanted him to fall victim to loophole syndrome. And Jesus still blew them away with his answer. Whose name is on it? Caesar? And give him what's his. And give God what's God's. And again, Jesus drops the mic and epically walks away from the battle. But haven't we collectively as Christians done this like a million times before? How often have you seen Christians debate people, oftentimes other Christians, looking not for knowledge, but looking for people to fail, looking for them to trip up, playing the game of stump? When people see this, can you blame them for not wanting to come to church? So the next time you want to respond to that Facebook post or that Twitter feed, that blog article, whatever, check your heart. Do you want to stump or do you want to love? Let me give you our next fill in the blank that will lead us to our final theme for the day. If studying the Bible, going to church, or upholding moral code has caused you to unlove someone, you're doing it wrong. Let me quote James, the brother of Jesus, before we move on. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's the religion. That's what it looks like. That perfect law, that perfect love, that's Jesus. And you can't love if you don't listen. And you can't listen if you're already talking. You also can't listen when you're thinking about what you're going to say next. If we're always talking, always angry, always arguing, always trying to find a loophole, how in the world could we look after orphans and widows? How in the world could we truly love anyone? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't try to find loopholes when it comes to loving you? Because just like the earlier passage shows, he knows a heart's intent. He doesn't say, hey, I know your thoughts. I know all those things that you've said, and I even know the stuff that you've left unspoken. How dare you ask for anything from me? He doesn't say that. And he doesn't just pick up the Old Testament and smack you with it and walk away. He loves you regardless, in spite of you sometimes. Let that sink in and let's move to our last theme. 
What's love got to do, got to do with it, parentheses, baby. My favorite. That comedic relief comes to you, uh, depending on when you were born, uh, in 1984 by Tina Turner, or more my era, Fat Joe, Ashanti, Ja Rule, 2001-2002. But where does love fall in this, really? What's love got to do, got to do with it, baby? The answer is everything. It has to do with everything. It is everything. And it isn't love like the world teaches. It's not this transactional, mutual, back-scratching, based-on-life-circumstances kind of love. It focuses on others far before self. Think of the example of widows and orphans that James gave us. Paul says in the most famous wedding passage of all time that love is slow to anger. And James tells us to be slow to anger and slow to speak. This love puts arguments and debates aside for the sake of the human, for the sake of the intent of the commander, not the letter of the command. In other words, like our next fill in the blank, love of God and love of others is primary. We revisit Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And before anybody could even go, thank you, or quiz him on it, he says, and the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Look at verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And remember, in Jesus' time, writings of law and writings of prophets pretty much were the scriptures. There was no New Testament. And this isn't the only time Jesus urges people to put all the commands and all the laws and all the prophecy through the filter of love. Let's take this further. Look at John 5, 39. You study the scriptures diligently. This is Jesus talking. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is God's love on display. He is fulfillment of prophecy. All of scripture points to him. And he says to love. Love. Jesus says to love. And much like we mentioned earlier, the Bible, the church, the upholding of morality, all good things can be dangerous if taken out of the context of Jesus and this greatest command of love. Jesus not only has the power to reframe the law and the prophets, he is the reframing of the law and the prophets. And this leads us to our next fill in the blank. The Bible is not a cookbook. Pastor and author Greg Boyd was fairly recently interviewed about his new book, Benefit of the Doubt. Here's a quote from that interview between himself and Jonathan Merritt. Merritt asks, You write, The assumption that everything in Scripture is equally authoritative inclines people to read it along the lines of a cookbook. The truth, however, is that the Bible is not at all like a cookbook. It's a story along the lines of a novel. Can you explain how this impacts the way one reads the Bible? Boyd responds, When you read a cookbook, it doesn't matter where you find the recipe you're looking for. The location of the recipe is irrelevant to its meaning. Things are very different when you read a detective novel, for example. For in a detective novel, things that mean nothing early on may take on great significance by what transpires later on. The story gets reframed as riddles get solved and further clues are unveiled as the story unfolds. It's important for us to realize that the Bible is an unfolding story and not entirely unlike a detective novel. As the story of God's interactions with his people unfolds, we learn more and more about what kind of God we're dealing with and what his plans are for humanity. 
And the story culminates in an extremely surprising way in Jesus Christ. On the one hand, Jesus fulfills all the promises made in the Old Testament, which is why Paul says that all God's promises are amen in Christ. Yet he fulfills these promises in a way that hardly anyone saw coming. For example, no one expected the Messiah to come as a humble servant, to inaugurate a kingdom that transcended all national boundaries, to command people to love their enemies rather than to conquer them, to allow himself to get crucified at the hands of his enemies, and then to rise again on the third day. So the Bible is an unfolding story with a markably surprising twist in the last chapter. In fact, I submit that the story of God that we find in the Bible is a lot like the movie The Sixth Sense or the book of Eli, in which the last minute of the movie reframes the entire movie. When Jesus shows up, everything that preceded him gets reframed and must be reread in light of what he reveals about God and God's expectations of his people. End quote. Have you ever done this? Have you ever read the Bible like a cookbook instead of a beautiful writing that points to Jesus all the time? I have. How many of you are familiar with Matthew 18 where Jesus is talking about how many times we should forgive people and then someone offers up a sample size of seven and Jesus goes, how about 70 times seven? Now, when I was pretty young, I was given a really great study Bible and one day I was uh, feeling the pangs of childhood guilt and I flipped to the index and look up forgiveness and it led me to this passage. I then about passed out when I figured out I could only be forgiven 490 times. What I failed to do was look at how Jesus was using wordplay to hit home with those around him. I failed to look at other passages on forgiveness. I failed to look deeper into the intent of the commander when it came to forgiveness. The first generation of the church had no Bible. Some of them, depending on where they lived, had some letters from Paul, but that was about it. All they knew was the story of Jesus and love. Love like Jesus. There was no such thing as clobber verses. There were no televised debates. There were no news feeds for people to scour and bash someone else's post on faith or politics or ALS ice bucket challenges. There was just love like Jesus. And the church grew and spread like the world hasn't known since. There was no room to argue over correct beliefs. Like I mentioned earlier, if we stop distracting ourselves with debates over what Jesus said, we'd have far more time and energy to do what Jesus did and has called us to do, all the while using the Bible as a mirror to see how we're doing. Christ followers in the early church were being slaughtered for following Christ, and the church still grew because of how they lived. They lived in a loving way that nobody else, nobody else had seen before. In other words, they were being killed for their beliefs, but how they were loving was still carrying on the kingdom. But we tend to preoccupy ourselves with what one believes rather than how one loves. This leads us to our last fill in the blank for this time. How you've been loved and how you've been hurt has shaped you more than theology. I'm going to pull a lot from my study on Stanley's work for this point. There are people, pastors, priests, sitting in prison right now for hurting or assaulting someone. And these people have excellent theology. They know every verse of every chapter, yet the people they hurt don't care about the theology of their offender. They care that someone has hurt them. How many times have you or someone you know been hurt by someone who is a great theologian? 
Someone who could quote every chapter and verse for every sin or life hardship. Maybe a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, an elder, a deacon, uh, someone in the church. I know I have. So you at least know one. But I'm assuming that you know far more. And the inverse is also true. I think I could safely assume that there are people in your life who probably weren't the most active in church, maybe didn't know all the right passages to quote, but they loved you so deeply that they set you up for success in ways that you never dreamed imaginable. I have felt some of the deepest, most Christ-like love from people who would have probably marked I have no religion on that ABC poll. I have also felt the deepest of hurts from those who boast the title of Christian proudly. And I'm not counting spiritual conviction or healthy things that could be painful. And I'm not saying that only Christians and churchgoers hurt people. And I'm not saying only people outside of the church love people. But one does not make you exempt from the other. You could still hurt people and boast this title and be active in your church. And you could still love people even if you're not the greatest theologian. So what do we pull from this? What's the point? What's the sermon in a sentence? Love like Jesus. That's it. Jesus loves God fully. Jesus loves all humans fully. He fulfills both of those greatest commandments. And we are to do the same. Jesus does not allow loophole artists to confine his love. He doesn't allow religious leaders to use his or his father's words against him. And every person you ever meet, every person you'll never meet, every celebrity or politician or activist or blogger you think about calling out on social media, anybody you're toe-to-toe with, any time that you decide you're going to write that angry email to your boss, remember, Jesus loves that person and died for them just as much as he did for you. Are you loving these people like you want to be loved? Are you loving these people like Christ loves them? To quote Stanley, Christians use the Bible like a mace. Disciples use the Bible like a mirror. Christians like to talk about people. Sometimes as disciples, we have to go talk to people. If you take nothing else away from today's message, take this. The only common ground worth having as believers is the love of Christ. If we all share the same politics, it is empty without the love of Christ. If we all share the same views on Genesis and Revelation, it is worth nothing without the love of Christ. If we all like the same style of worship music and fair trade coffee and favorite social causes, it is all in vain without the love of Christ. So my challenge to you is be a disciple. Love well. Today, as the worship team comes back up, we're going to take part in communion. Now, like I mentioned earlier, the early church had maybe some letters from Paul, depending on where they lived. They certainly had this idea of Christ-like love. And they also celebrated communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. And this symbolizes for us and reminds us of what maximum love on display looks like. The brokenness of Christ's body for us. The shedding of Christ's blood for us. Not just so that we could be better people, but so that we could live in relationship with him and in loving relationship with others. So as you come to receive communion today, I want you to think and pray and ask God for the desire to love himself and others like Jesus displayed for us. Would you pray with me before we continue? Lord, we thank you that you have given us love, love without loopholes. Lord, that you... uh, 
know our hearts, you know our intents, you know the things that can plague our minds and our beings, our very existence. And you love us regardless. And this love is hard to grasp. Sometimes it's hard to materialize, it's hard to synthesize, and we know we've been called to it. So Lord, in this time, as we remember the body of your son broken for us, the blood of your son shed for us, we ask that we take these symbols to heart. We take that sacrifice to heart. And Lord, that you give us that same level of love for you and for others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please come to the table. Some of you may be thinking, hey, Dusty, you forgot the scapegoat part. Uh, It's in your title, and you didn't talk about it. And to that, I say no. I just strategically placed it, hopefully. Um, Some of you may be going, well, I can't love like Jesus because I've been hurt. I can't go to church because I have too many bad memories. I, I can't, I won't. And others of you may have a series of but what about questions floating around in your mind. In the words of Perry Noble, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. If you lean heavy on these crutches of why you can't love, you're going to end up picking up that crutch and using it to hit people. Past hurts and experiences can't be your true scapegoat because they'll never fully take away your burden. Jesus has offered a way out of that burden, a way into freedom and hope. And I would encourage you today that if you are looking for that freedom and hope and love and friendship, that you come pray with myself or some of the other pastor, staff, and prayer team right now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for opening up your hearts to this topic. I challenge you to go and love God and others like you have never done before because like the song goes, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Amen. Have a great week. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.